Welcome to The First 10 Years, a career podcast focused on learning from our past to propel us into the future. I'm your host, Danielle Doolin. I'm a communications professional, career and finance writer, and a career changer. But most importantly, I'm fascinated by work and how it fits into the bigger picture of life. I love to ask questions and want to know everything there is to know about how to have a successful and fulfilling career. On the first 10 years podcast, I'll reflect on my career journey thus far and invite other professionals and experts into the conversation so we can learn together how to turn the first 10 years of our career into a foundation for our ideal future. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 12 of the first 10 years podcast. I am so excited for today's conversation with our guest because this was such a pinchy moment to have her on the podcast. I have been following her work for the past couple of years. I've read both of her books and I was just like, there's, it just felt like such a dream. I, when I had the opportunity to have her on the podcast and just so unreal, Um, So I'm so excited to bring you a conversation today with Lydia Finette. And we recorded this at the end of last year. Um, So if you hear us reference this year, we're referring to 2023. Um, And I also wanted to note that she lives in New York City. So you're going to hear some New York City noises in the background. So it is authentic. You hear some, some hustle and bustle on the street in the background. I even lost my train of thought at one point because I was so invested in what she was saying and the words and wisdom that she was sharing on our during our conversation. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Um, she is so eloquent. Elo- <laughs> I can't even say it. She's so elegant and poised, and it was just truly amazing to have her on the podcast. So let me share a little bit more about Lydia. Lydia Finette is the founder and CEO of the Lydia Finette Agency, a boutique agency representing best-in-class charity auctioneers. Over her two-decade-long career, Lydia served as the Global Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships for Christie's and reshaped the fundraising landscape as the world's leading charity auctioneer. She has single-handedly raised over $1 billion, yes, billion with a B, dollars for more than 800 organizations and broken down countless barriers for women in the auction industry. Widely recognized for her poise and power on stage, she has stood alongside celebrities, including Bruce Springsteen, Hugh Jackman, Elton John, Matt Damon, and Jerry Seinfeld to raise record-breaking donations for the most notable charities across the globe. Lydia is the author of two best-selling books, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You and Claim Your Confidence, as well as the podcast host of Claim Your Confidence in collaboration with Rockefeller Center. Her book was optioned by Netflix in 2022 for a series that will be produced by Sheridan Entertainment, starring Kiernan Shipka as the lead. Lydia is represented by CAA and travels internationally to speak to companies about unlocking their sales potential, empowering people in the workplace, and the art of public speaking. You can follow her auctions, antics, and anecdotes on Instagram at Lydia Finette. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Like I said, this was just such a dream to have her on, and she shared a lot of great words of wisdom. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Lydia. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity, Danielle. I'm so excited for our conversation. Yeah. So before we dive in, I actually had something I wanted to share because this is really a uh, full circle moment for me. So back in 2021, I received, I guess, my first big girl promotion. I got promoted from specialist to a manager. And for Christmas that year, my husband bought me your book, The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. So I actually had never heard of you before. Sorry, I have now, but I'd never heard of you and I read it and I, it was such a good gift to get. I read it over the holiday break. It was very empowering and stepping into my new role. And it was just like, wow, like she sounds so confident. She sounds so sure of herself. I was like, I want to be like that. Like, how do I emulate that in, in my new role in the work that I do? And now here I am two years later, I couldn't talk to you on my podcast. So thank you for being here. Oh my gosh, that warms my heart. There's nothing I love more than people who find that book either as a gift or they see it in a bookstore and it speaks to them because it is such a it's such a powerful title and you kind of have to want that in your life at that moment to pick it up and read it. But I do feel like when people read it, it galvanizes something in them that's already there. So I'm just excited that the words challenged you and, and made you think about what you could do to live a confident life. That makes me really happy to hear. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And I think it's, I'm sure the title caught my husband's attention. He's always supportive and cheering me on. He's like the best cheerleader I have. So he's like, I saw this and I thought of you. And so it spoke to him too, which is really great. So <laughs> sounds like a really great 
guy too. <laughs> yes, yes, he is amazing. He is my biggest cheerleader, and I think we all need one of those in our life. So I'd love to start my conversations getting to learn a little bit more about you and your early career. So I'd love to know if you could walk me through the first 10 years of your career, starting with what you wanted to be when you grew up. Well, if you asked six-year-old Lydia what she wanted to be, it was probably just famous. <laughs> and also, I think I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> I think I'd read somewhere about being an assistant in a doctor's office, and they had lots of stationery, and it looked really cool in the book. So that was a real goal for me for about a year and a half. But I really thought I was going to get discovered at a very early age. For doing what, I have no idea. But it was definitely like my theater side, my love of performing, whether that was on a stage or just in general. So I don't know that I had any specific roadmap, except for the fact that my dad was a lawyer. So I always thought that I would follow in his footsteps, that I would be a lawyer like my father. And I did a lot of, you know, summer jobs working in the copy room at his law firm, just literally copying legal books. And I read an article when I was in college that really changed the entire trajectory of my life. So Vanity Fair printed an article about the sale of Princess Diana's dresses at a place called Christie's Auction House in New York. And, you know, it was so long ago, I don't know if I had heard of it. I don't know if that was the first time I'd heard of it, but that article for me was really something that captured my imagination. And I would say that there's a through line in my life that if I read something that sticks with me, it's typically something that I'm going to make happen in some form through sheer will or through just having the opportunity, being in the right place at the right time and saying yes to that opportunity. And that piece for me really just it captured everything that I thought I wanted out of my life. The people who worked at Christie's, apparently, according to this article, were glamorous. And they lived in New York City. And they worked on Park Avenue. And they traveled around the world, interfacing with the wealthiest individuals in the world. This, for whatever reason, was exactly what I saw myself doing. I had no connections. My parents were not art collectors. I grew up in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is not a bastion of art collecting. And I decided that I was going to try and get an internship. And this was really my parents just being like, listen, the best way to do anything is to try to get in the door before you get in the door, if you will. And so I remember calling the internship coordinator there and she basically laughed me off the phone. She was like, listen, this internship program has been full since January. It is April. Internships start in June. Like, I don't know what you think is going on here, but like you are not going to be interning here this summer. And she was so sweet. And I just don't think that she realized what she was up against at that point, because one thing I will say is if I have my eyes set on something, I will make it happen in one way or another, whether or not it looks the way I thought it did at the end, it is absolutely going to happen in some form. And so I just kept calling. And, you know, I like to say to people, and you won't understand this because you're younger than I am, but there was a time when there was no caller ID. So you could call people as many times as you want. And they always picked up the phone because they're just like, it could be anyone on the phone. You know, it wasn't like someone calling that you didn't want to, and you could screen their call. You just picked up the phone. And so she did. And every morning I would just ask her about the internship program. And every morning she'd be like, well, there's really no movement on the wait list that I've just created when I'm talking to you right now. You know, there was no wait list. It was so informal. Um, the only fixed part was that there were 30 people and that was the fixed number. And she'd filled the 30 spots and that was it. And I finally just day after day was calling, getting the same answer. She was getting annoyed. I was getting upset. And at the end, I just finally said, like, can I just ask you something? Why are there only 30 people? And she said, well, because the museum docents at the museums can only take 15 people in a group. And so that closes it off at 30. And that for me was just a complete opportunity because as you may remember from the beginning of this conversation, there was nothing in me that was like, I want to go to the museums. I just wanted to be at Christie's. And I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I wanted to be there. And that was the first day that she didn't say no. She just said, you know, I'll call you back. And so I did a modified internship, which was supposed to mean that I wasn't going to go on the museum tours unless other people didn't show up. But guess what? A bunch of college students doing internships and a lot of people did not show up. So I went to pretty much every museum tour that was there. But more importantly, I was a one-man workaholic at that company from the minute I walked in the door. I would do anything anybody asked with a huge smile on my face. I was so excited to be there, and there was nothing that could diminish that. And I still, to this day, having worked in that company for over 24 years and having had so many interns, can count on two hands the, the interns that really like stuck out to me. And those were always the people who I saw myself in the people who came in and were just like ready to dig in and were just excited and enthusiastic about being there. And 
as a result of that, I think people just really liked having me around, honestly, because they knew that I would do anything and that I would do it happily. And I was always asking for more more opportunities, more things to try, more, more sales to see. Could I do the after hours work and stay? I remember at the end of my internship, I was in the events department and they would leave me to finish the events because the women, there were three women and they were there every single night. And I would say, you have to be here every night and you guys have, you know, you're older than I am and I'm sure you have other things to do. I don't really know anyone in the city, so I can just stay and wait until the end of the event when everyone leaves. And of course, at first they were like, no. And by the end, I was like, you cool for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'm like, yeah, that's good. I'll save for all of them. Um, but that for me was the opportunity to meet more people. And that was the end of my first internship. They tried to hire me out of that internship and I had to go back to college. I, they didn't realize I was a junior at that point. And I really went back right after I, right after I graduated from college and was hired into a different department for a short amount of time until there was an opening in the events department. And I went straight back into the events department. And I stayed there really for my first 10 years at Christie's. Simultaneously in that time, I tried out to be an auctioneer, which became my second job at Christie's and the one that ultimately I really became known for. But I cannot even explain to you how much I loved my first 10 years at my job. I mean, we worked 11 and a half months out of the year, seven days a week. The, I can't even tell you the number of hours we were working, but it really was so much fun. Like I look back on those years, we made a lot of mistakes, but the beauty of what we built as a team was that we were all in it together. So if something went wrong, we circled the wagons and figured it out. It was never about like, oh, you did this wrong or I did this wrong. It was like, oh God, like I forgot this. And every single person on the team and every single person in the company was always behind the other person being like, I've got you, let's keep this going. Like, I've got you, we can do this. And I feel like that was just such a great learning environment. It's not to say it wasn't tough. It's not to say I didn't cry a lot, which I did in a closet, but that's another story. <laughs> but I truly back on that time is so many lessons learned about what I'm good at, what I'm not good at, surrounding myself with the right people. And eventually, you know, I became the director of Christie's events when I was 26 years old because the two women above me left in quick succession. And it was kind of like, well, no one else knows what's going on, so you can have the job. And I was like, great, not really realizing how big the job actually was because my bosses were really good at their jobs. And the interesting part about it all was that I feel like having been thrown into that, I had so much to figure out so quickly. But as a result of that, I felt such confidence in what I was doing by the end of that first decade. And I don't think you can ever look back on something like that and be like, if I hadn't put my hand up, if I hadn't said yes to that opportunity, it wasn't the right choice. Do you feel like you've always had that level of confidence? I feel like you have to in some way to have, be that persistent about getting an internship and, and stepping into big shoes like that. And um, at such a young age, like, do you feel like that's always been there? Or is it something that you've had to harness yourself? I think I've harnessed it a lot over the course of my career. I do think that I was born with a fair amount of confidence. I had parents who were very eager for us to try everything and never really worried whether or not it worked out. And as a parent, I think it's the biggest gift you can give your kids where you're like, yeah, play soccer, even if you're not good. I'm going to stand there and I'm going to cheer you on and you're going to lose. And we all know it. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because you went out there and you tried. And that in life over the course of your life is such an incredible gift because you don't worry so much about the outcome because you know that the learning is in the process of it. And you know, when I became the director of special events, I remember sitting in one of my first meetings with my boss at the time, and he was the director of business development for the company, for the Americas. And everybody had to go around and tell what their department was doing and give sort of a status update. And I remember he said to me at the end, he's like, um, or actually he said to the group, okay, now we're gonna have an update from the special events department. And I was just sitting there and he's like, Lydia, you're the head of the special events department. And I remember thinking, oh God, oh, uh-oh, <laughs> this is, you know, oh, uh, okay. You know, I've always been quick on my feet. So I think I like cobbled something together, but I remember thinking, okay, so by next week, I need to know what we're doing. I mean, that was really where I was coming in at that point. And, and I also remember another conversation, a very difficult conversation with the same boss who told me at the time that our chairman, who was very well respected and had been at the company forever, and who I had a lot of respect for and was also a little scared of, had said to him, 
you know, I don't really know if this thing with Lydia is going to work out. And when you're like 27 years old and you hear that, and I mean, we're doing 11, as I said, like we were working nonstop, doing everything we can. And I remember thinking, like I cried, I went home and I cried. And, and then I remember thinking, watch me. Like it made me dig my heels in and work 50 times harder and be more attentive to the things that I knew I wasn't good at. So that if there was ever a doubt, it was never because I hadn't put my full weight of, of my own confidence into it. And I will never forget, there was a dinner that took place probably a couple of years after I became the head of events. And he came running up to me and he said, Lydia, there are, meaning like there are clients walking in who were not on the guest list. And I had already seen them walking in and had, had grabbed our calligrapher who we kept, I always kept a calligrapher sort of like in the back just in case things like that happen. And, um, I said, oh, I've already, I've already had their place cards and they're going to go out on the table. The calligraphers working on them. And I remember this look of like calm and recognition at the fact that like he actually could let go of the reins because I fully knew what I was doing. And so those moments like that gave me confidence over the years, because if he'd come up to me two years earlier, I would have been like, oh God. And then I probably would have cried in a closet again. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, you know, I think a lot of that is just it's learning and the, the learning for your career and, and frankly, for your life comes in those years between your twenties and your thirties. And ultimately I think in your thirties and forties as well, you know, you've been taught things your whole life. If you're in school, you're living with your parents until college. I mean, you know, everybody has a different circumstance, but let's say it's something along those lines that you're in schools, you're with your core group, your parents, caretakers, whatever that is until you're 21. And those are your years where people are telling you what to do. They are creating your life for you. And then really 20 to 40 is you fumbling along to figure out who you are. You know, I wrote my first book when I was 39, because I think at that point, it's like you're passing back that information to other people. And I remember being in my 20s in New York, writing or thinking to myself, I wish somebody had told me how lonely it is when you graduate from college and you go from this place where you know everyone and people are right next door and you have plans 24 seven to being in a new place where you're on your own. Like no one had ever told me that that was going to feel lonely and that I could walk around in the city of 8 million people and feel like I didn't know anyone. But mm -hmm. I'm glad that I pushed through and persevered because ultimately I think that's a lot of the confidence and that's where it comes from. Yeah. I think the lessons learned and the confidence comes from doing the hard work, which is not the sexy or pretty answer, but that's where it comes. You have to do the work. Yes, it's true. And you have to go through it. You know, I do really think that by avoiding the tough things in life, we do ourselves a huge disservice because you get so much more confident when you try something really tough that feels really outside of your comfort zone. And even if you ultimately fail, the fact that you did it will make you think to yourself like, okay, that was scary. And I still stepped up to the plate. Like that was scary. And I still tried it anyway. And then the next thing doesn't seem quite as scary. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to work those first 10 years at the same company. And ultimately you went on to have an over 20 year career at Christie's, but I think that's so uncommon now that, that people stay at a job that long in a role that long, they tend to hop or that's almost what they're told. If you want to get a, a new title or a raise or promotion, something like that, you need to move. But what was it like actually digging your feet in, like you said, and building a career at one company? It was amazing. You know, again, you have all of your mistakes, but you also have those lessons learned. And then you have this shorthand that someone coming in on day one doesn't have. Like it's something as simple as an acronym. In the art world, the auction world, it's a completely different language. And if you work there for long enough, the language becomes your first language. And then you watch someone walk in the door who's just arrived and it's almost like a foreign language to them. And so I always loved it. I loved I'm a people person just by nature. And I loved the relationships I had with the people who were there because they were so long. I would say over 20 years, the flip side of that is that in a way I was still everyone's intern. <laughs> I know that sounds really funny, but I had been, I left the events department to start another department, department called strategic partnerships after my first decade at Christie's because I wanted to stay. I loved the company. I loved the culture, but I didn't see a next step for myself. And through a series of a different series of things that really became about a salary negotiation, I ended up pitching and starting a new department called strategic partnerships. And I can remember about five years into that, the same chairman who I was talking about earlier called me and he was like, Lydia, who 
throws the best dinners? Like, who's the best caterer in New York? And I was like, I haven't been the head of events for five years. <laughs> but that, and I, of course, then like Googled it and answered the question because that's the kind of person that I always wanted to be at work. I always wanted to say yes. But I think sometimes when you've been at a company for so long, the way you were when you were younger is still what people think of you. It's called fixed perception, I believe. There's actually a technical term for it where people are like, oh, but you are like this. And you're like, no, I was like that, but now I'm 20 years older, so I am not like that anymore. But people will still sort of see you like that. Almost as parents, I think. You know, it's like as parents, you'll probably always see your children as an image of them as a younger child, even when they're grown-ups. Yeah, I get that. So talk me talk to me about what those next 10, 15 years at Christie's looked like once you um, stepped into those other roles that you had mentioned. So I launched Strategic Partnerships um, about 10 years. I think I was 30 when I did that. I saw a white space and a need for partnerships for the company as a revenue source. It was something that was not what it is today. Partnerships were not really things that brands did to extend or amplify. And so I just realized during the downturn in the market in 2000 and 2008 and 2009 that people wanted access to what we had. And what we had at that time was world-class art and clients who coming in the door to see it. So if you want to see a painting at a certain level, there are only a couple of places in the world where you can do that. So we had these moments over the course of the year, sort of tentpole moments over the course of the year where we knew our top clients would be there. And that becomes valuable for companies who are looking to get engage them. And so it kind of started out with natural partnerships like financial institutions, but then over 10 years, it expanded into luxury cars and private jets and all of the accoutrement that goes with the wealth at that level, which is really not even high net worth, it's ultra high net worth. And because it is such a rarefied group of people, there are so many people marketing to them actively. So there was always the fine line between how we keep it in a place that feels consistent with the Christie's brand, which having lived for so long and having lived within the four walls of that company for so long, I felt like I knew inside and out and had a good gauge on what we would allow in. And so strategic partnerships was part of my job, and that was actually my full-time job. But then I had a second full-time job as a charity auctioneer. And that was a completely different part of my life. It was something that took place outside of the four walls of Christie's at night on stages really all over the world and was a skill I developed on my own time. You know, Christie's used it as a volunteer service to get in front of our clients. And over time, it just became something that I was doing so much. It was a business of its own. And ultimately, when I decided to make the decision to completely leave Christie's, which happened in March of this year, it was really to start a new agency um, to deal with charity auctioneers and to represent them as a talent agency. So before we dig into that, I'd love to know how your definition of success has changed since starting as an intern at Christie's to where you are now as an entrepreneur. You know, I thought success when I was young was something finite. You know, I thought, oh, if I could get on the Today Show, I would be successful. If I could write a book, if I could sell my first book to Netflix, like that's success. But what I've realized is there is no end to success. You know, success is not linear. It doesn't happen in the form or the way that you think it will. And it's actually really exciting once you realize that because you realize the sky is the limit. You know, people will say, oh, but you're so successful. I'm like, I'm, I'm literally just getting started. <laughs> like, you don't understand how much there is coming. I'm, today is day one. Today is day zero. And I think that is a really interesting concept that I could never have conceived of in my early 20s in, the, in that first decade. I just, I always thought I was striving towards something. And now I've realized like, this is all part of it. It's all part of this journey. And success is other people's perception of what you're doing. And your own success may be something completely different. You know, being a good mom, a good partner to my husband, a good businesswoman, these are all things that make me feel successful. That may not be what everybody thinks is successful. That's so true. It's definitely something that is so personal. Like you said, it often is the external perception of what people think success is that we set these markers towards. I know I did the same thing in my early career and now it's, I'm having all these conversations with all these amazing women. And the, the theme is really the same, that it shifts so much. It has to be that internal validation and, and how you define success. And I think that's a really beautiful thing because it means something different to every person. I know. I often say to people, especially people in their 20s and 30s, I'm like, there's no gold star after you leave, after you leave school. 
nobody's going to give you a gold star for going to work on time and doing your job or doing a load of laundry or you know, doing something extra with your kids. Like you have to figure out what is going to make you feel good and you give yourself the gold star. And once you realize that and you stop looking for external validation, confidence is a lot easier to come by. I'll tell you that because you know what it is. You've created the four walls of, of confidence and what you're creating. Absolutely. So let's dig in a little bit more to your decision to start your own agency. That it probably felt like a huge leap going from this longstanding career, this very successful career that you built for yourself to going off and doing your own thing. So how, how did that come about? I kind of told you before, as it pertained to the Vanity Fair article, you know, once I read something or once I think of something, I can't unsee it. And I'd had the idea for the agency for a li- for a while. I knew there was something after Christie's. In March of 2022, I had transitioned from a full-time role into an ambassador position for Christie's, which meant that I was no longer running strategic partnerships. I was only taking charity auctions for the company. And that was nice. It was wonderful to still be associated with the company, but I had outgrown Christie's and I think Christie's had also outgrown me at the same time. Like we'd come to this place where I'd done everything I wanted to do there. I didn't want to leave, but at the same time, I didn't want to stay. And so the ambassadorship, I think, was like a nice way for me to be able to still be there, but also not be there, which was great. So I never had to go back to the, into the four walls of Christie's. I could continue taking auctions and continue promoting the brand. But as I was wrapping up that contract at the end of March of 2023, we were discussing the next year's contract. I just couldn't get myself to sign it. Like I, I couldn't bring myself to sign it. And it was sitting in my inbox for a while. And I kept thinking, I think now is the time to do something. I'm not entirely sure what it is. And then I'm a a keynote speaker. I was speaking at the Goldman Sachs in the lead conference. And I remember Candace Nelson, who started Sprinkles Cupcakes, was speaking on a panel before I was going on stage and I was listening. And someone said to her, you know, what do you look for in a founder? Like, what do you look for when you're investing in someone as an entrepreneur? And she's like, I look for two things. I look for somebody who has a deep knowledge of their industry. And I remember thinking like, there is no one who has a deeper knowledge of charity auctioneering. than I've been on 1800 stages since I was 24. I still, I took seven auctions two weeks ago. Like I can go anywhere in the world, take any auction. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And then she said, and the person has to know how to sell. And I was like, oh my God, if that is not the biggest white flag, like, stop here, think about what's happening next. Like, I don't know what is. And so I started talking to a lot of the women at the event about this idea I'd had about an agency. And the beauty of being around female entrepreneurs who are high performing is they are the first people to say, do it. <laughs> They're like, do it. You'll probably you should do it. And it's just an amazing thing because they just don't care. Like they've all been through it and they know what it takes. And I think if you see that in someone else, you're like, you got this, you know? And so that was kind of when I started thinking about it. I still hadn't signed the contract. I came back from that conference and I went on the, the, I guess it's called the Token CEO podcast from Barstool Sports to promote my second book. And at the end of the interview, the woman who was interviewing me said, so let me just ask you this, because you have all these things going on. Do you have an agent? And I said, yeah, I have a literary agent, you know, who helps me with the books and getting them in front of the publishing houses and all of that stuff. And she said, no, but I I meant like an agent. And I was like, well, I have a speaking agent because I'm a keynote speaker. And she's like, no, I meant like an auctioneering agent, like who deals with all of this and the requests and everything. And I said, oh, no, I don't have an auctioneering agent, but I'm starting an auctioneering agency. And then I basically told her, like you can hear in the interview, I am watching the words come out of my mouth as I tell her my entire business plan for my auctioneering agency that does not exist. And I was like, Oh my God. And I ended up, we, we finished the interview shortly thereafter. We finished up and I said, Oh my God, I've never told anyone except for my husband that I was going to do that. And I was like, when is this going to run? And she said, uh, two to three weeks. And I was like, Oh my God. And I remember coming home and my husband was sitting in our living room and I came running and I was like, Oh God, 
you won't believe what I just did. And he didn't even look up. He's like, but that's just how you do things. He's like, that, you told the New York Times you were writing a book before you started writing a book. And I was like, you're right. This is how I do things. And within that three-week period, it was like I had everything ready in my brain. It was like I just needed to give myself that moment where I'd pushed myself into a corner so that I couldn't get out of it. And I did. I, I got the branding together. I called the woman who'd done my original website. And I was like, these are the colors. This is the outfit I want to wear on the cover. Like everything was set. And I resigned the night before the Token CEO podcast went live uh, from Christie's. And because I was out of my non-compete by that point, because I'd been a consultant for a year as an ambassador, I was able to launch my auctioneering agency the next day. And honestly, it wasn't scary at all. It felt really right, which is also why I knew that it was right. Like I, I was a little nervous, but it didn't feel like that big a leap. It felt like, and, and the best part, honestly, I'll tell you, Danielle, is that as soon as I did it, every single person was like, oh, yeah, that's the natural next step. Like, of course, that makes sense, you know, because it did. It, it absolutely made sense. So, so no, it didn't feel scary. It felt like 24 years headed into what I've been waiting to do all along. And that's been really exciting. That is a truly amazing story. I love that. Sometimes our brains know before we're like ready to even do it, but the fact that it kind of just like spilled out of your mouth and you're like, I got this, we'll figure it out. Oh, I love that so much. I mean, honestly, you should hear my, as I'm saying it, I'm like, I can't believe I'm saying this. Like, I cannot believe I'm saying this. But also my husband's response, he didn't even look up. He's like, yeah, that's just how you do things. Like that's, yeah, that makes sense. I told the New York Times you were going to write a book before you wrote a book. I was like, <laughs> Um, but I think, again, sometimes you just have to take that leap of faith and believe in yourself that, you know, it's going to be what it is and you can make of it what you want. And to your earlier point about, you know, what success looks like, I, I said to Chris, my husband, right before I launched the agency that day, I was like, you know, the beauty of this is in two years, this won't even look like what I think it's supposed to look like. He's like, absolutely. Because that's what it is. Like, that's what entrepreneurship is. Like you come at something with all these ideas and at the end of the day, they may or may not work, but as long as you're willing to go along with the ride and the journey, you're going to be better for it. I just completely lost my train of thought. I was so engrossed in your story. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, um, so now that you're approaching almost a year in business for yourself, how has that been in hindsight? I know that was scary, but you're also confident stepping into it now that you have kind of gotten your footing. How is, how is it going? It's been great, honestly. You know, it's built and grown so quickly. It's hard to believe. I knew it would work. I, I really never doubted it, but I now have 10 auctioneers. I had coffee with someone yesterday who I think will be the 11th auctioneer who's going to be working for me. You know, I put out on Instagram on November 2nd, I had four auctioneers on stages in New York City and I was on stage, which was so exciting for me because we were all on a text chain together and everyone's like, you know, go do it. Have, have such a great time. Like you're going to kill it on stage. And I think that's what I'd always wanted from the charity auctioneering community when I was working at Christie's. And because it wasn't art auctioneering, it was never given the same reverence or the same like, I don't know, it was never, it was never treated with the kind of respect that I felt that it deserved as a craft and as a skill. And so it's fun to be able to create that for people. And when I told you about, you know, other people's ideas about what you're doing, I can't even explain to you the number of people who reach out to me, A, about becoming auctioneers. Like, you just can't believe how many people have that secret desire to be an auctioneer. But the second piece of it is how many other businesses reach out about doing really cool and interesting partnerships with what I'm doing in ways that I did not expect at all. And what I love most is that I use that gut reaction of whether or not I'm going to want to do it as the, the absolute North star in everything that I'm doing. If I read an email and I'm like, yes, this fires me up, I will do it. And if I read an email and I'm like, oof, this feels like a round peg square hole, immediate no. And that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur. That's the beauty of being an entrepreneur, because when I was working for a company, there were a lot of times that I would read that and be like, I just don't think that's right. But like, this is coming down from the top. <laughs> There's nothing I can really do about it. And now I'm like, you know, if it works, I'm the final buck. And if it doesn't, like buck stops here. So either way, we'll figure it out, good or bad. Have you always been a trust your gut person? I think it's come to me in the, la in the second decade, for sure. It wasn't there in my first in my first 10 years. I was always looking around for other people's opinions. But now I just don't I don't look around and I don't really care. You know, somebody emailed me, actually someone I knew emailed me once, not even once, probably a couple of months ago, and said, you know, 
I sometimes wonder if your personality is so like New York focused that maybe you should think about like angling yourself in a different way. And I, I immediately wrote back. It was the first thing that came to mind. I was like, I learned a long time ago. I'm not going to be everything that everybody wants. I am who I am. And that's it. And I'm happy with that. I'm happy with who I am. The people who surround me are happy with that. And that's all that matters to me at this point in my life. And that I didn't have in my 20s. And I wish I had because it's a really great feeling to feel very comfortable in your own skin. Absolutely. I've been a big proponent lately of that concept of trusting your gut, because I think there is such a a science behind why we have that reaction. I think we have all of these data points that we've gathered throughout our careers, throughout our lives. And if that's the initial way we're reacting to something, there's probably a reason. It may not seem logical at the time, but I think our bodies know like, yes, this is for me or no, it's not. Yeah, (laughs) it is so true. And it's it's thrilling. You know, I can even tell you like, I got an email last week and I remember reading it and being like, oh God, everything about that sounds painful. <laughs> Hard pass. <laughs> Even like the number of tone on an email, I'm like I would definitely not want to work with that person. Like hard pass, you know, Yeah. Um, versus someone who's an email where I just like read it. And I'm like, I'm going to like that person. I can tell. <laughs> so you've alluded to the fact you have two books. So you have the most powerful woman in the room is you and your book that came out this year in 2023, Claim Your Confidence. So talk to me a little bit about why you wanted to write these books. They're aimed at empowering women, teaching them how to use their voice and to sell themselves and to be the most confident version. So why um, the genesis of these books? Tell me a little bit about that and why you wanted to be the author. You know, I would get off stage as a charity auctioneer in for probably 15 years and have a woman standing next to stage telling me how much she hated selling things and how bad she was at it and how if people didn't buy what she was selling, it was because they didn't like her. And I remember thinking, you know, I grew up in Louisiana. My mom is British. I didn't grow up in places where women are taught to go after things with abandon. And I must have learned it somewhere. And the more I really dug into that, I realized I'd learned it on stage. I'd learned it on stage night after night, asking people for money and them not giving it to me and learning to pivot out of a no or take no with a smile and just not take it to heart. And over time, I realized that if I could learn it, I could probably write about it. And I've always been a storyteller. I mean, I'm sure you probably thought this podcast was going to be 30 minutes. It's probably like four hours by the time we're done. (laughs) But I health and everything's told through a story. So it's hard for me to not explain it through a story. And when I sat down to write, it just kind of came out. And when that book came out, I was on book tour. And I feel like every single time I was asking people, you know, does anyone have a question? It was always a question about confidence. Like, how are you so confident? I mean, you said it reading The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. So I thought I was going to write a book about confidence and then COVID hit. And, you know, I feel like everybody's confidence was shaken during that time. And mine was definitely shaken, but I didn't hit rock bottom during COVID. You know, I think within a month I'd launched an Instagram live called the most powerful woman in the room is dot, 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 and was just interviewing women. And I feel like people then started reaching out to me over DM. Like, I have no confidence. How are you still confident? What do you do? What are your tips? What are your tricks? And I started writing again. And that was really how Claim Your Confidence came to be. And I was going through a lot in my own life, which you can see in Claim Your Confidence. You know, the most powerful woman in the room is you is written it finished in 2018, end of 2018. It's like, rah, rah, girl boss. Here we go. You know, I was in my late 30s. I just had my third kid. I was on top of the world. I'd written my book. I'd been at Christie's for two decades. And then COVID hit. And it didn't feel so rah, rah, girl boss anymore. It felt like I was, uh, you know, a cafeteria worker for my three children. I was trying to run a global team. My husband lost his job. I took a 40% pay cut. I mean, it was bad news. And as I was writing, I was like, I am positive and I am sure that this is going to come out okay. But at the end of the day, I need to be honest about what I'm going through. So people don't think that it's like, I'm just skating through this, like with a pair of pink pink ice skates, you know? And, And so Claim Your Confidence is a much deeper book, a different book, but I think it really gets to the root of confidence and having confidence, losing confidence, getting confidence back. And then the last chapter is about this horrendous car accident that my husband and my three children and I were in. And I wrote it five weeks after the accident when, I mean, really, I don't think there is a better way to describe it than like an absolute nightmare scenario. You know, we were hit by someone who was coming in the other direction and lost 
control of her car, flipped the guardrail, and the car came spinning through the air and smashed into our car where we were going about 70 miles an hour in the left-hand lane. My three children were in the back. My husband and I were knocked out. I basically broke my body. I mean, I fractured my spine with an inch of its like place left. I mean, it was a really gnarly injury to, to describe what the surgeon told me. I broke all my ribs. My husband shattered his left wrist. My children had broken bones. I mean, it was really the worst case scenario. But what I say in that book is that at no time, even when I came to in the car, once I knew my children were alive and okay, even when I didn't know if I was alive and okay, I knew that no matter what happened to me, if I lived, I would be okay. And I would figure it out. Like, I remember, honestly, Danielle, thinking to myself, I could absolutely be paralyzed. I couldn't feel anything. My body was completely numb. And I remember thinking, well, I could definitely take auctions in a wheelchair. Like, I could be an auctioneer in a wheelchair. Like, that's something I could do. I, like, literally let myself go there because I know that no matter what happens, I'm confident enough I can come through the other side and be okay. And... Part of that's resilience that's built over time. Part of that's pushing myself out of my comfort zone time and time again over the course of my life to test myself. And as a result of that, I felt like it was the perfect way to end the book. Like, look, you guys thought everything was going to be okay. And then like out of left field, this comes. But at the end of the day, like we are all going to be fine because we are confident people. And if we dig into that confidence and we claim our confidence, it doesn't matter what happens to us, we will be okay. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember reading that chapter and as a parent myself, I was like, it's, it, you said it was a nightmare situation. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing that story and how we can come out the other side of, of things like that. We, we make it through hundred percent of our hard days. And if you can make it through that, I'm sure you feel like you can make it through anything. Yeah. It does feel like that a lot of times. I'm like, well, it's, this is bad. It's not as bad <laughs> as Halloween of 2020. <laughs> If you had to pick your favorite piece of advice from each book, what would you say? Oof, favorite piece of advice from each book. Um, my first one, I think, would be sell as yourself. You know, be your authentic self whenever you're presenting yourself to the world. It's really hard and exhausting to pretend that you're someone that you're not. Um, so I would say sell as yourself. And then in my second book, Action Leads to Action is one of my favorite phrases that I use all the time. You know, if you're stuck in life in any regard, personally, professionally, take a look in the mirror and be like, what am I doing to make things move forward? Because so often we're looking around like, why is everybody else successful? You know, why is everybody else getting this or that? It's not about what they're getting or what they're not getting. It's about what you're doing in your own life to go after what you want. So I think that ownership piece is something that I will always harp on because it's what I see in other people when they feel like they're not getting what they want. I'm like, but are you going after what you want? Action leads to action. I love that. I think a lot of people sit around waiting for motivation to come so then they can do the work, but oftentimes you just need to start doing the work and the motivation will follow. It's often backwards. Yeah. It's so true. It's so true. You also this year started a podcast um, coined after Claim Your Confidence, called Claim Your Confidence. So tell me a little bit more about that and where the idea for that came from. So it really came as a result of the Instagram Live that I talked about earlier that I started during COVID. Um, Rockefeller Center, which is where I had worked for 24 years and where I had published my first book, has an amazing team of women who'd invited me to speak at their Women of Rock Center right before COVID. And I'd become friendly with one of the women who worked on the team. And so she watched every single Instagram live that I did during COVID. And she called me, I guess it was maybe right after COVID, like maybe the beginning of 2022 and said, you know, we're opening this podcast booth in Rock Center. Would you ever be interested in bringing that concept, the most powerful woman in the room is dot, dot, dot to Rock Center? And I said, you know, it's interesting because I sold my first book to Netflix, so I can't use that name anymore. But I have a second book coming out and it's called Claim Your Confidence. So what if I did a podcast and I just talked to women who were at the top of their industry and games about their confidence journey? Because as I said before, like, I don't think it's linear and I think everybody comes at it from a different place and it changes over time. And it's just been so fun. I mean, you have a podcast, you know this, there's something really amazing about just sitting and talking to somebody for an hour. It feels like you're at a dinner or you're, you know, just on a plane with someone that you didn't know. And all of a sudden you can ask them anything you want. So 
it's been amazing. I've loved it. And I'm about to wrap my first season at the end of January. And in my second season, I'm going to start incorporating some guys as well. Just people that I know who have incredible lives and incredible stories. So it'll be a mix of both for season two, which is fun. I love it. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen myself and I, I love that it's in a booth that you're there together. It's so cool to watch, especially, I mean, we're doing this virtually and a lot of podcasts now are recorded virtually, but to see people in person, I'm sure you can have a lot more engaging conversations and it, it, it must be a lot of fun from the outside. It looks that way. It is. It's really fun. And you feel really, it's, it's interesting being in such a cozy space with someone because the place where I um, broadcast is called, or the, the place where I podcast is called Newsstand Studios and it's an old newsstand. So it's very shallow and it's long and thin, but it has a plate glass front so people can walk by and wave. So there's sort of this fun engagement part. And, you know, depending if the guest, the guest is sort of a notable guest, people sometimes know them and take pictures and wait outside afterwards, which is also kind of a fun thing. But you do find that you get to know someone really well. And it's interesting because I'll spend an hour with someone and then they leave and then I'll be out in New York on another night and run into them for the first time in person since I podcasted with them, having never met them before. And I'm like, I know so much about you. <laughs> it's hilarious. I'm like, I know everything about your life, um, which is really, it's such a cool and, and it feels like an honor. That's amazing. So you've had this great career. It's still getting started with your agency. There's so much more to come, but you've done all of this while being a wife and also a mother to, to three children. And as a mother and wife myself, I have to know, what is your secret? How do you get it all done? <laughs> do you have any tips for the rest of us? <laughs> um, you know, I will say, I will start off by saying I've always had a lot of energy. So let's start there. I have a ton of energy. I don't tire easily. I also love naps. Um, I don't think I'm a great sleeper at night. And so I can really crush a 15 to 25 minute nap. Like you've never seen, like with kids running around, I'll be like, you guys just play. I'm going to just sit in this chair and close my eyes for 15 minutes. And that's been really helpful, especially when I'm traveling like in and out of time zones and stuff like that. But I think a lot about having kids is just about really making sure that you have your schedule wrapped up and that you know what's coming. You know, people laugh at me because I have a paper calendar that is printed out with all of the months for like 10 months and I put everything on it. Because to me, it's like a game of 3D chess. I have three children. I live in New York City. My husband and I are shuttling people around. Like some days we have a sitter, some days we don't. Sometimes we think we have a sitter, but then they don't show up. So like there are a lot of different things that we're working through on an average day. I'm on stage pretty much every night, September, October, and November. So making sure my husband's home and that if our kids have an activity, there's someone to bring them there. There are just a lot of things to do. And I find that for me, writing it on a calendar so I always have an overview of what's coming up helps me feel really in control of my schedule. And then from there, it's about just being regimented about my schedule, making sure that I'm looking at what's coming up and that I'm not feeling like I'm constantly on my back foot. I'm like, okay, if in a week we're doing that next weekend and I have seven auctions between now and next weekend, I should pack today because I'm not going to have a chance between now and then. I mean, it's literally that silly, but I think that that's it. And also just giving myself grace when things don't work out. You know, there was a that week that I had seven auctions and the last one was in Portland, Oregon. On one of the days I had two speeches, um, a podcast, and then two auctions back to back in a night. And I, I was like trying to answer emails and I was like, what am I doing? Like, I don't have enough headspace to touch an email today. And so I literally was like, I'm just not answering emails today. Like, I'm not going to answer a single email. I'm going to go from speech to speech to podcast. And that is the only thing I'm going to focus on. I'm going to have my lots in front of me and just like take out the white noise, you know? And then I was able to go home, spend time with my kids before I went out for the auction because I wasn't like trying to do my emails, which by the way, can always wait another day. And they did and no one died. So giving yourself grace in those moments to not be like, oh, I didn't get it all done. It's like, get what you can get done and give yourself the gold star for getting it done. It's so important to have that self-awareness to know, like, I'm just not in that headspace. Like you said, nothing's going to happen if I don't answer those emails today. So awesome. So if you had to sum up the best career advice that you have and the best takeaway from your career thus far, what would you say? Well, I would say without a doubt, don't look around for someone else to create your career path. You know, I know everybody creates those HR maps and there are all these ladders about what you should do in your career. 
you need to figure out what you want to do and then figure out how that fits into the company that you're working for or go find a company that it works for or start your own company. Because at the end of the day, giving away that opportunity to choose your own career and create your own path allows you to just be like, oh, someone else is going to take care of this. No one's going to take care of it for you. and No one knows what you want to do. So be the person who sets the intentions and sets the goals. Don't drift along like you're on the top of the wave, just like enjoying the ride. Be intentional about what you're doing and take ownership of your life. That is such great advice. And I think that's so important when everyone's looking for, like you said, for career paths or what is that ladder or what is that jungle gym, whatever analogy you want to use. It, it truly is your, the world is your oyster. You have to figure out what you want. So what would you say you're excited about in the coming year? Oh my gosh. Uh, so many things. I'm excited about my first retreat in January out in the Hamptons, which I've never done before, but I'm really excited to do. I'm excited. I have an idea for a public speaking school. I'm saying it here. This might be the first time I'm saying it out loud, but I have a bunch of ideas for launching a public speaking school next year. And the Netflix project that I sold my book, first book to, because the writer's strike is over, hopefully will start to really roll next year, which is exciting as well, because I'm a producer on that. So there are a lot of different things, but I think for me at the end of the day, it's really about the auctioneering. <laughs> it's getting back on those stages, raising money for nonprofits, teaching people how to be auctioneers and watching this next generation of auctioneers get out there into the world. Amazing. Are you able to share a little bit more about the Netflix special? Is it a show? Is it a movie? Uh, well, right now it's in, we're writing the pilot. So it's been, everything's been on hiatus because of the SAG and the writer's track sag and writer strikes. And so right now, all I know is Kiernan Shipka is attached. We have a script. We're waiting for feedback. So that's where we are. But the book has been sold to Netflix. So that's nice. that's where we are. Awesome. I can't wait to learn more. I'll, I'll definitely stay tuned for that. Well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for sharing more about your career and your expertise. I'd love to know where can people find you, learn more about you and support your work? Well, I am all over Instagram. So if you ever need to find me, just look on Instagram because I live on Instagram, which my mother loves because she always knows where I am. And I have a website, LydiaFinette.com for speaking or auctioneer agency bookings or auction bookings or really my books. Everything is on my website. So LydiaFinette.com or follow along on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lydia. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Danielle. It was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Lydia Fernet. I hope you enjoyed everything that she had to share because I know I did. If you enjoyed this conversation or other conversations on the podcast, I would love if you could leave a rating and review wherever you're listening, whether that's on Apple or Spotify, it really helps others find this content and amplify the content in their feed. So we can keep building and growing this audience. This has been a fun journey for me. So I hope to continue on it. So the more the merrier. If you want to follow along with the podcast on social, you can find us at the first 10 years podcast, or you can reach out to us via email at the first 10 years podcast at Gmail. I look forward to being back next week with another guest episode. I am so excited. If you want to follow along me, um, in the meantime, you can find me at, at Daniel Doolin on social, and I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye.